0: I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, well women. Welcome to the show. On the show this month, I interviewed Dr. Caitlin Collins, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. She studies gender inequality in the workplace and family life. Her award-winning book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving, is a cross-national interview study of 135 working mothers in Sweden, Germany, Italy, and the United States. Dr. Collins is a featured speaker at the Work and Family Research Network conference in June. And in fact, the Well Woman show is a media partner. The Work and Family Research Network is an international organization dedicated to advancing the impacts of work family scholarship on lives, practice and policy. Information about joining them and the upcoming conference can be found at WFRN.org. I'll be interviewing several WFRN scholars leading up to the conference, and you can find them all at npr.org and search for The Well Woman Show. As always, the links and information are at wellwomanlife.com radio. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from The Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com academy. I'm speaking with Dr. Caitlin Collins this morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so good to talk to you. And Dr. Collins, I want to get started by just asking you to share with listeners, who
1: are you in the world today? I am coming to you today in my professional capacity as an assistant professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, and I conduct research on gender inequality in the workplace and family life. And I'm here today to chat with you all about a book I published a couple of years ago about the experiences of working mothers in different countries, trying to get a sense for how they navigate employment and motherhood in places with very different policies and cultural attitudes about men and women and work and family. Yes,
0: we are going to get into all of that. I just wanna make sure that we give some space and time to just really understand who you are in the world, besides your professional title and and all of what you do professionally, how else would you describe yourself in the world?
1: Thank you. It's nice to have a chance to integrate the personal and the professional in this capacity. I think of myself relationally a lot. I am a daughter, a granddaughter, uh, a sister, a, a partner, soon to be a mother for the first time. And my interest in this topic of studying the experiences of working mothers comes from Having been raised by a phenomenal working mother uh, as a young child who watched my own mom, who was a phenomenal employee in the world of sales and marketing, but also had a hard time managing for family commitments with her work commitments. And I developed an interest in women's rights from observing my own mom's experience growing up and then my own experience as a young adult. So I would uh, describe myself as a passionate feminist, someone who loves to read and to travel, to spend time outside. And I have tried to create create a career trajectory for myself that integrates the, the personal and the professional so that my kind of political commitments that guide me in life um, align in some wonderful ways with mm. my professional commitments too.
0: Mm, I love that. Okay. Yeah. I think it's really important to ask women and to hold space for this conversation of integrating the personal and the professional. And of course, that's what we do on the Well Woman Show a lot, but you know, you're sort of living it too. Right. And, and I really relate to that because I earlier in my career, I was also living the professional commitment to really trying to identify economic security policy solutions for women and families while also becoming a new mom myself. And so... (laughs) So you're you
1: and I are <laughs> both trying to achieve these ends, both in our own our own home lives, but also in our when we have our professional hats on too.
0: Yeah. So it's definitely makes it really interesting and, and relatable, right? When you're doing both. So um I'm excited for you to to start that adventure personally, right? Like experiencing motherhood and I, I imagine it will impact your work although you have such a, a long and solid professional background already in the area of work and family i'd love to talk to you about your work so as you said earlier you're you're an author of making motherhood work how women manage careers and caregiving and i would love to ask you there's so much in the book and, and we'll get into some of the pieces but big picture Sure. how has the quote-unquote great resignation and we can talk about what that really means <laughs> how has that impacted your work and and your conclusions and, and your thoughts about the work family conflict and the solutions that you that you offer
1: the pandemic has upended life as we know it right and I conducted the interviews for this book with working mothers in Sweden and Germany and Italy and the U.S. prior to the pandemic, right? And what I think the, the pandemic has <laughs> underscored is the reality that all of us need care. All of us rely on care to stay afloat ourselves, but we also provide it to other people in various ways. And the pandemic really underscored how important a care infrastructure is to any given society. You know, when schools and daycares closed down across the board in spring 2020, parents were suddenly left to fend uh, for themselves around the clock and for especially white collar workers able to continue their jobs from home. This meant their home spaces were now workplaces as well as classrooms, (laughs) gyms, uh, you know, and daycare Mm -hmm. as Spaces for their children, and I think we were already asking mothers, especially mothers in the U.S., to really do the impossible. Uh, you know, the truth is that most mothers in the United States work for pay outside the home now, and most of them do so full time. And yet, they still bear the disproportionate responsibility for the domestic sphere, right? Caregiving and the housework that keeps households going. And now, in the case of the pandemic, all of this was taking place in the same space around the clock. And the Great Resignation, to me, was an indicator that when something has to give, very often what ends up giving is mother's employment with, I argue, deleterious consequences for their own personal well-being, but also their their professional trajectories too. So this great resignation has real consequences for women, both at home, but also in the world of work. And unfortunately, I think it's going to have lasting consequences. And my cross-national approach in studying this topic feels relevant here because other countries handled the pandemic very differently than did the United States, right? Um, in other countries, the sorts of phrase, let's, you you know, let's take Denmark for an example, a place I've written a little bit about, but Denmark is a place that had, for example, schools and daycares were the last places to close and the first places to reopen mm. here in the United States. We so often saw, unfortunately, in my way of thinking in the pandemic, bars and gyms and restaurants open and yet schools and daycares closed, which honestly constitute the, the largest infrastructure for care we have in the United States. Yeah. And absent that care infrastructure, someone has to take care of the children and so what often happens is that that work falls to mom's shoulders when, when care solutions fall through the cracks or, you know, evaporated in the pandemic, mom's employment is what ended up buckling to make way for family commitments.
0: Yeah. And I, I do think that the language around the great resignation really puts the burden on the individual or blame rather sort of, oh, it, it's about people resigning and actually
1: problem with that framing. Yeah, <laughs> like too. Too.
0: And, and you, you talk about this in your book, but I think it's really relevant here with the great resignation, which is that, and, and I wrote a piece about this last year about, it's actually really a great recognition, recognizing that actually this system doesn't work for me as an individual, as a family, as a society. And so, so I, I like to reframe that. What do you think?
1: I like that, that terminology about a recognition a lot. Part of what is a continued source of frustration and also, to be honest, a source of inequality, I think, in the United States is who already does recognize the importance of caregiving and the centrality of caregiving to daily life mm-hmm. and who has the luxury of not recognizing that day to day. And the honest truth is in the United States, because so much of that work falls to women's shoulders, women have long recognized how important this labor is. But we as a society do not t- tend to value value, the work, the labor, the very real work involved in caregiving, and the pandemic underscored just how central caregiving is to daily life. And uh, you mentioned this, this focus on the individual, which I think is, is it really a, a uniquely American approach to understanding the, the stress, the overwhelm, the guilt, the burnout, the, the difficulties that parents face trying to navigate employment and caregiving. And you yeah. I, you mentioned this piece that you wrote, I, I authored something with three wonderful co authors who have done work with me on on parents' employment in the pandemic. And we, in a Washington Post op-ed talk about what, this is in reality more like the great push rather than the great resignation to underscore the structural reasons why a lot of parents felt pushed out of the workplace, mothers Ooh. in particular, right? And so we have to, we have to situate women's decisions to leave jobs or to reduce their working hours in the broader context of what they can envision for themselves, right? What do parents find possible for themselves? And in the pandemic, many women felt pushed to their to a breaking point. And the one thing they were able to change structurally about their day-to-day life, the caregiving still had to happen, right? But yeah. for some women, that meant stepping back from paid work. Um, again, as I said, with plenty of negative consequences. But when something has to give, very often it's women's employment that ends up giving. And, and I think framing it as the great resignation suggests that this is just, you know, women just making a, you know, a free choice. <laughs> right. When actually they're, they're, the choices available to them were deeply, deeply constrained. And that yeah. to me is the heart of the inequality here. Women mm-hmm. deserve to have a much broader set of options available to them when they think about how they want to combine uh, caregiving and employment, if at all. And yeah. uh, we live in a society that doesn't offer women very many options,
0: right. OK. I have so many things I want to ask you about. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I just want to sort of really address this up front here. and you you talk a little bit about this in your book, but there there is a lack of diversity among the mothers interviewed for your book, and you acknowledge mm-hmm. that in the book. How do you see, like, where are you with that? Are you going to do a new study? Are you in the process of that? Like, how can you put that in context? Because that's so important right now Uh, to really include the voices and the experiences of
1: all, of all mothers. Absolutely. Yeah. So to clarify, my book focuses primarily, well, focuses entirely on middle-class working mothers across these four countries. Uh, and these middle-class mothers that I interview in these, in these different societies are primarily white, though not all entirely. And if you zoom out a little bit to think about the research design behind the project the impetus behind the project was an interest in understanding how women navigate work and family life in different political and cultural contexts. And so the decision to focus primarily on middle class mothers was in part by necessity and part by choice. Holding social class sort of constant across the context helped me, helps enable a clearer lens on the role of policy and culture there because I'm talking about mm-hmm. similarly situated women, socioeconomically situated women across these different country sites. But the other really important, important point here. Is is that I conducted my interviews with women in English across these countries. It's the first study using one researcher across multiple country sites for a study on the impact of work-family policy on day-to-day life for mothers. And I think- you know, it is a big trade-off to focus only on middle-class mothers, but it gives me both analytic clarity and an ability to have these conversations just myself, rather than having to rely on a series of translators to chat with women across these countries. And English-speaking women are primarily middle-class um, in these other societies. And so that was a kind of a necessary restriction of the sample of women that I ended up speaking to. I think that studies on other groups of mothers, whether that's a study on low-income mothers, a study on racial and ethnic minority mothers or immigrant mothers, for example, a study on just single mothers, right? Mm -hmm. Or even a study on fathers are all wonderful, important, timely, relevant projects. And I encourage, I hope (laughs) that the project serves as an inspiration for other folks to kind of pick up the torch and carry these projects out. My own work is pivoting to look at the the US childcare system here in the United States for my next project. But so I'm not conducting the studies I just mentioned myself moving forward, but this is the beauty of academic research right? We can't do everything in one project. We are already standing on the shoulders of giants who came before us and publishing work on this topic. And my hope again is that more folks kind of extend the research, complicate the research, add nuance to my findings by talking with other groups of women. So the group that I'm speaking to is is somewhat homogenous, but talking about that in an intersectional way is really important. How do do my findings extend or not to other groups of women is a really important kind of open empirical question. So Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful this spurs other projects, but I'm also cautious in talking very specifically about the group of women I spoke to and not generalizing that to to the experiences of all mothers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great, great clarification. Thank you for that. And I I do want to ask you about, and you brought this up or, or we were talking about a little bit about it just a minute, a few minutes ago, the idea that work family conflict is really based in principles of free market capitalism, as you say in your book. Which is essentially a real focus on individualism. How on earth are we going to do some of these, make some of these solutions happen with that as a foundation, which
1: I agree with
0: that 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 is the found, you know, that is the foundation of the country of the US.
1: Just a so. little problem, right? Dismantling capitalism <laughs> as a way to free women from the stress and overwhelm they feel day to day, no big deal. Right. Uh, like it's so important
0: <laughs> to acknowledge that as we're working on these solutions to say, hey, these solutions are actually super challenging because of this.
1: <laughs> yes. Right? And it gets to the heart of how US society thinks of itself, right? What what does it mean to be a US American, right? What, what are the values that we pride ourselves on as a, as a nation? And so often, unfortunately, to my way of thinking that has to do with free market beliefs in capitalism, as you said. And this is kind of a (laughs) a constant question that sociologists run up against, because we know that that system is fundamentally broken, that that system does not provide for families in the way that they need. And it is a central mechanism through which we see sexism, racism, and white supremacy, homophobia, xenophobia unfolding, right? And so we can't just say, okay, let's just go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow and start out with a new economic system in our country. That's not how it's mm-hmm. going to work. Given that reality, there's some sociologists who have written around um, Eric Olin Wright being one of them who, who have written around this idea of a real utopia, a real utopia, meaning we have to be able to envision the world that we want to live in in order to try and get there. If we can't picture it, if we can't envision it, then we can't try and work toward making that a reality. And so this idea of real utopias is that we need to kind of design the world in which we want to live and then think about step stepping stones that move us, you know, slowly, but surely in a positive direction toward that vision, right? And a lot of sociologists have done work around this. I'm certainly not uh, the first or the last, but my book is an effort to get us closer to that by looking at other societies that already are leaps and bounds ahead of where the United States is, right? We don't have to start from scratch in envisioning this better, kinder, gentler, more just, fair, and inclusive world. So Eric Golan Wright, this wonderful sociologist passed away several years ago, talks about what he calls accessible way stations, right? What are these way stations that can move us in the right direction? And given the realities of free market capitalism, to my way of thinking in the United States, part of what this means is showing empirically that there is a strong economic and business case for more robust work-family policies in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the beauty is that we have, that empirical research now. For example, paid parental leave, there are robust benefits for paid parental leave, of course, not only for children and for mothers and fathers, but research has shown quite clearly that Offering paid parental leave offers a panoply of benefits to employers and also to the national economy. So, if we are operating in this free market capitalistic society, we also have research to show that supporting working parents actually benefits us uh, financially, benefits us economically. And making that argument to me is one kind of step in a positive direction toward passing these policies at a national level. So, to me, that's one way of thinking about what change looks like given the current. You know structures in which we operate. Data. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that because that is also the conclusion that I came to when I was working <laughs> in policy development years ago on creating more economic mm-hmm. security for women and families. And one of the things we came up with was, you know, we really need business partners here, and we've got to show business and employers that actually this benefits them. And and we created a whole program around that, which is now up and running and operating in, in several states to That's try wonderful. to... Yeah, to really work with businesses and employers to say, look, if you do these things over here, you will actually benefit over over here and your bottom line and and all of that. And Dr. Collins, I want to ask you about this terminology that you use in the book that's fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit about it, this life world that you talk about incorporating people's individual, you know, the, the individual, the organizational, the institutional, everything? Why why that terminology and how how does that help us understand work family conflict and work family justice as you say
1: Yeah, So I write in the book about a need to understand the life worlds that mothers live in day day in and day out, right? I talk about life worlds of motherhood because I think, again, the US tendency to focus only on the individual obscures the reality that we do not live our lives separate from the social structures that shape our daily existence, right? So uh, the families we live in, the homes we live in, uh, the workplaces that we work in, the communities, the neighborhoods, the city, the county, the State, the country that we live in, all of those other levels in which we lead our lives, the other contexts, they're nested, right? And when we don't think about the big picture, it obscures our ability to recognize both the barriers and the opportunities we face in our day to day lives. And as I mentioned, I think the reality in the US is that choices for different groups of people are deeply constrained depending on their social location, depending on their life world, right? Um, And using the phrase life world, this is not my phrase. By example, this is a term that's been written about plenty beforehand, Mm -hmm. but I talk about life worlds of motherhood in particular, because I think it helps broaden the focus out from beyond the individual to think about the other forces that are operating on, in, and through a woman in her day-to-day life. So very often, moms talk about, you know, their personal choices about how much to work, when to work, what field to work in, et cetera. But we have to think about what other forces are coming to bear on those decisions that they're making, right? And so zooming out to look at women's life worlds helps us understand, for example, how that maps onto their their household structure, right? If you have a partner or you don't have a partner, that really influences your ability to work for pay. Mm -hmm. Your level of education really influences the sorts of career trajectories you can envision for yourself if you live in a county or a state that offers paid parental leave, your ability to think through what it would mean realistically to have a child and integrate that with your job are very different than someone else living in a county or a state that doesn't offer that. And using this phrase, life worlds of motherhood enables us to bring in all these various contexts that bear down on a woman's daily existence, I think, and helps us to focus less on the individual and more about the structures shaping the possibilities women can envision for themselves in their day-to-day lives.
0: Okay, so interesting. And I just want to say on the Well Woman show, we we do talk a lot uh, to and about motherhood, but we don't actually limit it to that. It's sort of like we we talk about women integrating work, you know, their professional lives and their caregiving lives, whether that is caring for children or parents mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. other relatives. We we find that women are the caregivers right in in yeah. the family generally and so does your work ap- apply
1: equally to all caregiving Hmm, good question. So I think the truth is I, I talk in my book specifically about the experiences of mothers, but all of us caregive, as you pointed out, all of us have other people to which we have responsibilities and commitments, whether that's to children or whether that's to parents, to partners, to other relatives, to our next door neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to the people in our workplace that we show up to show up to and see day in and day out for many of us, 40 ish hours a week. We care for all sorts of people and all sorts of, we think, about kind of the web of care that we are all enmeshed in. It's not just parents; it's all of us, right? And I think all of us deserve to be able to hold down a paid job in addition to caring for the people who matter to us, regardless of whether or not we're parents ourselves. And we live in a society that doesn't value that labor of caregiving very much, and we certainly don't create opportunities for folks to integrate their paid work and their family care or other forms of care very well. And that negation of the reality that so many of us are engaged in care is part of the problem. So. Realizing how central this is to our daily lives, I think, is a big step in the right direction. And then honestly, I think the pandemic helped underscore that reality in a way that we didn't talk nearly as much about beforehand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love how you say in the book, all adults have the right to combine wage labor and caregiving labor. I think that just is its such a simple Nice way to wrap that up, <laughs> that complex <laughs> that complex idea of, yeah, it's wage labor and caregiving labor. And I do want to ask you, it does seem like, at, at least in my work and supporting women to integrate, be and, and define themselves as a well woman, and that means so many different things, but work and family are just two parts of us and there's so much more as well so there's the the self and the you know other things that we're interested besides work and family sure, yeah. <laughs> and so where do you, i know you didn't necessarily study that in your book but where do you see this bigger picture of of work and family and other things, you know, fitting in, like, how does that fit in with your work?
1: Great question. Um, I love this emphasis on well women. And if I'm being totally honest with you, I think the truth is that we live in a society that does not facilitate wellness (laughs) across the board. And certainly not for women. I think women are taught to negate their own needs, values, preferences, interests for the whole Um, very often. They're taught not to put themselves first. And I think that's a problem. And this focus on work and family arises in my research because it's two of the realms in which we spend so much of our waking hours. Though I agree with you completely that there's plenty more to our lives other than our wage labor and and our family time. So I love that you are thinking about this in a more holistic sense. And this is why I talk about justice in the book rather than balance. I think balance, again, suggests that this is an individual's job just balance better. But mm-hmm. justice reminds us that there is a political series of powers operating that shape our ability to live the sorts of whole, good, well lives that we want to lead. And the truth is that we need to, I think, transform You know, the, the public policies that give us more time in our day-to-day lives to operate as the sorts of well women that you mentioned. And I also think we need to transform some of our cultural beliefs about what really matters day in and day out. And we talk a lot about how important work is. And we, what we mean when we say that in the US is paid work. Mm-hmm. We really value wage labor. And I think we have to decenter <laughs> work from how we define ourselves as people if we are to unlock the possibilities of what it means to lead a whole rich and fulfilling life. And I think Different people have different access to that fulfilling life in the U.S. So to me, thinking through a movement for what I call work family justice in the book is, is deeply intertwined with other social movements for liberation. So for me, that means things like the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., uh, the fight for 15 minutes in the United States to, to pay a living wage for all workers, right? The sorts of reasons that, you know, white, <laughs> middle and upper class folks have access to a, a greater richer, more fulfilling life is a problem to me. Um, And I don't think we're going to unlock the solution to this unless we think holistically about enabling everybody, both the opportunity and the power to lead the kind of lives that they want to lead for themselves.
0: Yeah. So, so that's great. And I want to get to our segment called superpowers for success. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dr. Caitlin Collins. you are invited to join me for a brand new monthly group experience over in the Well Woman Academy. This is a monthly group that includes access to the full six-week course based on feminism, mindfulness, and the Well Woman Life Framework. It includes weekly groups, coaching sessions with me, as well as office hours and a private Facebook group to share and grow. Don't get me wrong, this is hard work, but with these tools, you will easefully find the time to do the course, get the coaching, and reach your goal's monthly. If you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing, waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety, lacking the energy you need to get everything done, stuck in some aspect of leading your team, procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or in a leadership role but second-guessing yourself constantly, I'd love to introduce you to the Well Woman Academy. It's for smart, high-achieving women changing the world who want to overcome anxiety, burnout, perfectionism and insecurity. The result, you get to live your well woman life, a life of joy, ease and abundance, even when things are tough all around you. Visit wellwomanlife.com slash academy to learn more. We're back on the Well Woman Show with Dr. Caitlin Collins, author of Making Motherhood Work how women manage careers and caregiving. This is one of my favorite all-time topics. And so good to talk to you, Dr. Collins. I want to go into this superpowers for success segment where listeners really get to know you as a person and a leader uh, in your work and in your life. And so the first question I have for you is what does success in
1: life mean to you? Oh, What a powerful question, Giovanna. What does success mean to me? Success to me looks like a fulfilling, enriching life with a world of possibilities and both the opportunity and the power to pursue the ones that appeal to me. Mm, Love that.
0: And when did you know you were really good at what you do?
1: (laughs) Man, that's a funny question to ask an academic because I think so many of us... uh... in in this field, spend our lives learning, which also means that we spend our lives realizing just how much we don't know about the way the, the world operates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a sociologist who studies social inequality. And I feel like the more years I work in this in this field, um, the more classes I teach with wonderful students, the more academics I meet and the, the research that I read about, the more I feel like I don't know that much. So that's, <laughs> it feels like a funny question to be answering. But I think in graduate school, realizing that, am really good at interviewing people who I don't know and getting them to speak candidly, openly, intimately, um, Mm -hmm. and in a vulnerable way about their fears, their hopes, their regrets, their perspectives their truths, even if I only met them 30 minutes before was a strength of mine. And I think conducting this project across countries um, and asking women to open up to me about motherhood, about their jobs, about their relationships, about their hopes for the future with people who I had only met a few minutes ago and learning such you know rich, beautiful, detailed, sometimes agonizing stories about mm. women's lives underscored to me that that this whole interviewing thing is something that I, I think I have a skill for.
0: Mm. Okay. I love that. I I love this question because I get such such a variety of answers and I think it really helps. It supports listeners to connect back with what they are, you know, what they feel they're really good at. And so this is it's just it's a great thing to talk about. And so my next question is just can you describe a personal habit that contributes to your own well-being so that you can be who you are out in the world?
1: I love these questions, Giovanna. Headspace, <laughs> the meditation app has mm-hmm. become central to why, to my well-being on the tenure track as an assistant professor. The job of an academic is is very often quite a lonely one and you spend a lot of time in your head. And the work is one where (laughs) your brain, your ideas, your thinking, your your writing is what you're valued for. And what I often think that means as an academic is that we perhaps overvalue our thoughts and our analytic capacities without Mm. sitting in our whole truths, our whole person very often. And um, having a, a daily meditation practice has helped me connect with my whole self and not just the analytic thinking side of my brain that I am valued for in the workplace. Yes. Um, and even carving out a few minutes a day to reconnect with my breath, to reconnect with the silence of my mind instead of only the thinking side of my mind has been enormously beneficial. And the more I meditate, the more connected to my whole self, I feel rather than just um, my thinking brain.
0: Yes. Oh, thank you for really explaining that because I have found talking to academics can be quite challenging in that way. Um...
1: (laughs) I hear that. I hear that deeply. Uh...
0: (laughs) Okay. And so what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time?
1: I think my intuition i would argue it could be a superpower mm-hmm. um, i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that my interest in studying gender inequality at, at work and in family life came from my own experiences with my own wonderful mother growing up and the reality to me that <laughs> my professional life was driven by, by by my very young experiences watching my own mom you know when my my mom folks got divorced my mom was a single mother for a period of time and she would you know when schools and daycares closed she would take my sister and I to her boardroom meetings and we would sit in the corner of her boardroom meetings and I would watch her command these you know roomfuls of men in suits so powerfully um, and then afterwards shuffle us home and, or to daycare or to school or whatever and I remember my mom apologizing a lot to us as a kid. And I don't, didn't really understand why at the time, but I think at a young age, I had an intuitive sense that there was something unjust about the scenario for a wonderful mom like myself, who was already deeply advantaged, right. By her race, by her social class, by her level of education. If she was having such a hard time combining employment and motherhood, imagine how much more difficult things would be for, for other sorts of women. Right. And mm-hmm. to me, this, this sense of unfairness at a young age has honestly blossomed into a career trajectory studying social inequality in in the discipline of sociology. And so I think this intuitive sense at a young age that what I was watching my own mom go through just didn't seem fair, blossomed into a career trying to think through what it would mean to create more fair just equitable and inclusive lives for, for mothers across the board is something that I think of as a superpower now yeah. I feel very proud, but also grateful to be able to, to glean uh, how these personal experiences map onto a professional trajectory that I find really fulfilling and rewarding.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Just a, a couple more questions because we are almost out of time here. What advice would you give your younger self say 10, 15 years ago?
1: Ooh. Ten or fifteen years ago,
0: or early in your adult life—I don't know how old you are, but you know, early as a <laughs> young adult.
1: <laughs> yeah, to trust in myself and my belief that a career studying inequality can amount to something. <laughs>
0: uh, mm. Yes, that that's sense? so powerful. Yeah, trusting and believing in yourself, and there's no amount of someone telling you to do that that actually works, right? It's sort of like in hindsight, like I should have trusted myself more.
1: Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Trusting that intuition that we talked about. I think um there are a lot of reasons. I think women in particular are taught to discount that inner voice, that sense of intuition and actually using that as a guide a source of wisdom I think is so valuable and so pushing against that desire to silence it is really important um, I think for everyone but women in particular mm.
0: okay do you identify and I think you already said yes earlier but you identify as a feminist what does that mean for you
1: oh a feminist is is someone who believes that men and women deserve the same rights, resources, and power and respect. Rights, resources, power, and respect uh, to my way of thinking. And feminism is not um, anti-men in the slightest. I think feminism is wildly beneficial to men in addition to women, but it is the simple question of treating men and women uh, equally when it comes to giving them rights, resources, power, and respect. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. And last question, Dr. Collins, what are you reading
1: right now? What's on your nightstand? Uh-huh. What's on my nightstand, a book called Parent Nation by Dana Susskind. Dr. Susskind is a pediatric surgeon, and she wrote this amazing new book um, that's making an argument similar to the one that I make in my book about the reality that Americans tend to think of raising kids as this personal and private responsibility. And her book argues that in fact, this is really bad for kids. It's bad for families and it's bad for society as a whole. She argues that we need to think of caregiving as a collective responsibility. And I'd encourage all your listeners to go pick up a copy of Parent Nation.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, great. Oh, so good. And this is a great place to, to leave this conversation. Although I feel like we could talk for hours more. <laughs> I encourage the people, listeners to read the book, Making Motherhood Work. And Dr. Caitlin Collins, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. It's a joy.
1: Thank you for having me on. And I appreciate your time today.
0: on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.